Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market glamour to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, it's all about natural resources. We'll take a deep dive into various natural resource sectors, such as energy, agriculture, precious metals, and more. And how do natural resources fit into investment portfolios in the current environment? How do they complement other real assets? How should we shop for natural resource funds? That's with our guest, natural resource expert and portfolio manager at VanEck, Sean Reynolds. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets. We are recording this in early December, and we're coming off a strong month and possibly heading into another. Rusty, where do you think we'll be by year's end? Well, you're right. We are recording this at the beginning of December. This will be published around year end. And as for the market, we are getting a strong close in year end. We kind of expected it for reasons we talked about, seasonal sentiment, post-election, potential peak inflation data points. But the bigger question now is how will 2023 look? And we again, we're recording this at the end of the year. 2023 outlooks will be hot. And I'm excited about this interview. The focus is on real assets and natural resource stocks. And for a frame of reference, the commodities asset class has been the best performing asset class this year, quite frankly, even over the last three years. Energy stocks have been the best performing equity sector. And by some measures, they're still cheap. I think what's interesting is that interest among investors remains low. And you can see that in the investment flows. Should it be? So the big question is this, are we in the early innings of outperformance of natural resource stocks? And today, I think we might find out a little bit more. All right. Well, let's bring in our guest. Sean Reynolds is Portfolio Manager at Van Eck. Sean, welcome to The Weighing Machine. Thanks for having me. So Sean, the first question is going to be the toughest, and that is, what is your walk-up song? What is the music we can hear for this interview? Well... It's not very dramatic and certainly uh, not a hype song, but uh, it's the song I think I live my life by, which is really uh, Humble and Kind by Tim McGraw. I try to live my life that way, but uh, I certainly look at the investment markets that way. Very nice selection. Awesome. Good addition to our playlist, which is getting longer and longer. It is. Yeah. So, Sean, you have been at Van Eck for 17 years. You've worked as an analyst at several other large firms, Goldman's on the list, Lehman Brothers, Credit Suisse. And you've also been an exploration geologist at Tenneco Oil and an energy analyst covering oil and gas exploration for Petrie Parkman. So tell us about your experience and interest in this sector and what drew you to it? Well, I guess, you know, I started off my career, my undergraduate career, actually in engineering and then kind of uh, twisted into oil and gas. And that's how I became an exploration geologist. And then, you know, this is back in the mid 80s when we saw, you know, a real downturn, a multi-year downturn, you know, in the oil industry. I left uh, to go back and get my MBA. And I always kind of say I left oil and gas to find something, you know, less volatile. So I came to Wall Street. And, uh, you know, that's kind of been a 50-50 call there. I'm not sure that it's really worked out, but I've always been attracted to the natural resources area. 
And uh, when I stepped into Wall Street, I was able to really look at it from a very, you know, a much bigger picture and kind of think about the themes that really drive activity and drive value, which was something I think I've learned all the way back in the you know, early part of my career. So today you're a portfolio manager at VanEck for the Active Natural Resource Equity Strategy. Can you tell us more about what you do in your current position? Yeah, so the Active Natural Resource Strategy is looking at the whole natural resource space, the whole underpinning of our economy. So it's active. So it's very much trying to drive alpha from all the aspects that uh, natural resources and the underpinning to the global economy provide. And so that's really looking at individual companies. You know, we try not to rely too much on commodity calls because we've been doing this, you know, for a long, long time. And to be honest, I can't recall any institution that is still around that's successfully calling commodity prices. So we start from the bottoms up and look at companies and say, how are you best positioning yourself to grow, you know, double your value over the next five years? And if you can't really do that, regardless of the commodity price, then, you know, we're kind of trying to, you know, pull away from that. And then the next step is to look at the commodity price uh, overlay and how you're mitigating that risk and how you're, you know, kind of dealing with that. So, Shantae, our primary topic again is on natural resource stocks. And Rob and I have a lot of questions, but kind of set the stage. What is VanEck's current view on the economy? Yeah, I don't think it's a whole lot different than kind of like maybe the consensus out there is, you know, we're heading into something that looks a little like a rough patch. But I would say, you know, there's a little bit too much of an obsession about, you know, where we're headed from a U.S. perspective. You know, the reality is, you know, you've kind of had this two sides, you know, between China and the U.S. or, you know, China and the West, the U.S. has had a pretty good 2022. I mean, actually, I have to say a really good 2022 economically. You know, you've had the second largest economy in the world actually, you know, I don't know if they want to call it an official recession, but it has been a recession there. And, you know, now it looks like that might flip around a little bit. You know, you might have a rough patch in 2023, just as you start to have a gradual reopening. I think most people would concur that, you know, you're going to have a gradual reopening in China, not a flip of the switch. And and as we see here today, as you said, we're here in early December, you know, there's some news out, you know, over the weekend that looks like that's coming again, not a flip of the switch, but it's going to eventually have to open. And that demand, as you know, you know, China is the largest consumer of commodities in the world. And when that demand comes back, you know, we see what's been going on there as kind of a tightening of the spring with a lot of fiscal and a lot of monetary stimulus, you know, kind of really being coiled there and waiting to spring open. And when that happens, which we believe will be sometime, you know, middle of next year, you know, maybe early part of second quarter next year. That should lead to a, you know an offset to anything that we're seeing here in the West. That's a great point. As U.S.-based investors, we often tend to think just what's going on here, but we live in a global economy. So absolutely right. Well, sticking on the economy for a second here still. So let's talk about inflation. And does Van Eck think it's going to stay high in 2023? Has inflation truly even peaked? What is the Van Eck view on that? Our view is that inflation has probably peaked. I mean, undoubtedly, it's peaked. You know, you hate to use the word unprecedented, but you know, the unprecedented <laughs> factors into driving to double-digit inflation. But you know, most of those have dissipated and have kind of gone away. 
but there's an underlying you know, supply situation that's basically going to continue to keep you know prices high. Now, does that lead to you know? There's the whole thing of you know trend and level. I mean, trend would be you know does inflation stay high? I mean, that means you know do you continue to grow you know prices at five or six or seven percent? You know, perhaps, but certainly prices are going to stay high. You know, and there's been a number of studies. In fact, we've done you know one here at Venec, you know, in our quantitative investment solutions group that basically says, you know, once you cross a certain threshold of inflation, and you know, it's at either five percent or eight percent, like it takes years to get down to you know low single digit. So, for example, here the study we did here says after you crossed eight percent inflation to get back down to three percent inflation, it takes you know a decade or more. I think the best country out there was something like Switzerland. It took them 5.7 years to get back down to 3%. The US, it took 12 years. The Netherlands, it took 20 years or something like that. The UK, 22 years. Now, this is history. So I'm not saying history is going to repeat itself, but it would be shocking to think that we cross past you know, 8 or 5% and that in 12 or 18 months' time, we're back down to 2 or 3%. That would be the anomaly. That would not be the norm. You know, kind of on that point, you know, I feel, and it's not really that controversial to say this, but I think it seems like the top variable for many investors is really what's the Federal Reserve going to do next? And if you look at kind of the expectations for the Federal Reserve is that, you know, I think people are, my view, a little optimistic, probably on the terminal rate and kind of given your comments, do you think the same? And what are your expectations regarding the Federal Reserve or, or do you even care in terms of your investment process? Well, we certainly care because what they, you know, their whole goal is to, you know, crush demand. Basically, that's that's the only goal right now. That's their only tool that they have is to crush demand. But we think that's going to be extremely hard for the Fed to do because we're on a completely different capex cycle on a global basis than we've ever been during, you know, tightening situations with regards to the Fed. If we look back to the 70s and early 80s, you know, you were on this massive capex increase you know, that went on for 14 years before you had, you know, the Fed come in and raise rates dramatically and actually crush demand. So you had demand falling off, supply skyrocketing quick fix to inflation, right? You even had that in the 2000s as well. Now you've had 10 years or 12 years of CapEx going down, supply now, you know, the last two years starting to react. All right. So now they can crush demand, but you have demand and supply going down. So it's going to be really rough to have that same reaction that people think, you know, that they can fix it like that. And then I would also just, you know, tie into that, that what the Fed or what central banks can do is crush their, you know, the demand that they're in control of. And so you have the U.S. and you have, you know, Western Europe acting that way. But that's not the way that China's acting. And, you know, that's not the way that a lot of emerging markets are acting. And those are, you know, as we know, those are the new sources. They're not new anymore, but, you know, those are the new sources of demand growth. So a lot of people think that there will be a recession in 2023. Does Van Eck agree on that? Well, again, it depends on what region you're talking about. Let's just start with the U.S. The answer is yes. I think it's going to be, you know, a, a kind of a what more or less a an average you know, impact type of recession, and probably more of a, you know, first half or, or you know, kind of at least the expectations are going to be in the first half. So the U.S. is probably in a good position to ride through that. Then I would say, with regards to Europe. You know, and this is probably as much my own personal opinion because I actually have been there four times in the last six months and was just there, you know, two weeks ago. Feel it's going to be really bad 
they have a lot of challenges ahead of them. And, uh, you know, one of them was just announced this weekend, which with regards with, you know, to Russian oil and their sanctions on Russian oil and, and cap on prices. I mean, there's a lot of issues with regards to the energy sector facing them, which then feeds out into the industrial and agriculture, you know, all sorts of spaces. On the other side, we've mentioned a couple of times here is China and the emerging markets. You know, as we come out of that, we really think that, you know, China can't really go down much further. They've already had, you know, social unrest. You know, we can call it whatever, you know, what was the cause of it? We can cause it COVID lockdowns or whatnot, but it has to do with, you know, getting back to actually creating economic wealth and they've reacted to that. And so we think as the months go on into 2023, definitely see that starting to open up more. All right, so we have now set the stage. So let's dive into natural resource stocks. And I guess just the ultimate question before we drill deeper is, how do they fit into portfolios heading into 2023? Well, the thing about natural resources has always been a diversification allocation, right? And so what we've really seen over the last decade or so is, you know, it's a huge growth allocation. And so where does diversification of something that's not real growthy, that's more value-oriented, well, you know, it obviously gets a smaller allocation. You know, I would say that also typically natural resources has always fit into a inflation bucket. You know, it's a real asset or whatnot. You know, how much does that make of your portfolio? You know, you see everything from zero, <laughs> which was kind of the right call between 2010 and 2020. But now you're seeing people trying to catch up. Some of the more aggressive names out there have been, you know, in the mid-teens or even, you know, I've seen over 20% kind of allocation. That usually includes some sort of, you know, private allocation as well. But, you know, somewhere in that, in that you know, high single digit to low teens, is, you know, seems to be about average where people are. And it just depends on, you know, what your policy is and what you're trying to do, what you're solving for with regards to your portfolio. Well, before we go any further into natural resources, first, can you define how those stocks, what's the definition and what sectors or industries are included? Yeah. So, you know, traditionally it is, you know, the energy sector, both the old and the new. So we undoubtedly, when we think about inflation protection and, and leverage to global growth, which we think resources are, that undoubtedly is traditional oil and gas, but also, of course, you know, renewable energy and green energy. And we can talk about that a little bit further if you want, but that's undoubtedly part of the story. So it fits in perfectly with a diversified and natural resources portfolio. So energy in all its forms, metal in all of its forms. So that would be you know, traditional industrials, that would be green metals. Some of the things you know we haven't really talked about for years or ever, <laughs> such as cobalt and graphite and manganese and lithium, you know those are all important metals as well. The precious side, which is a huge inflation protection, and then traditionally is the ag space as well. And now we also separate ag into traditional ag and to green ag tech as well. So almost all of those you know those traditional spaces are now divided into kind of. Where you've gone conventionally, and where do we need to go now to kind of solve some of the issues that we need to address? So you mentioned that natural resources has been sort of an inflation hedge. How effective are they as an inflation hedge, and how do they sort of compare to other inflation hedges? The great thing about natural resources is that it does what it's supposed to do when it's supposed to do it. You know, we put together a study, this is probably five or six years ago, and there's lots of other academic studies that basically point to this, is that in times of inflationary periods, 
which is basically above 2%, all right? So in those regimes, inflation regimes, natural resources outperform. Now you can divide that up into, you know, two to four, four to six, below six or whatever. Natural resource equities absolutely outperform the rest of the market. And by the way, those time periods, if you look back over 50 or 60 years, they dominate by a long shot. You know, that's basically, you know, 70, 80% of the time under 2%, which is basically the decade of 2010 to 2020, under 2%, you know, they underperform undoubtedly. So if you think about even just the last 20 years, so if we go 2000 to 2010, massive outperformance of uh, natural resources, very, very mild inflation, but above 2% for most of that decade, but massive outperformance, you know, by the strategy that I ran or I run was up, uh, you know, 400% during that decade. Okay. Then you kind of go through the global financial crisis. You come into 2010 and that decade, huge underperformance, low inflation, huge underperformance, right? You know, you wanted to be out of it or it didn't work. Now you look at, okay, you know, we're actually using the word inflation. We actually have inflation. We actually had high inflation. And what's really worked? Natural resources. So, you know, we look back and say, it does what it's supposed to do when it's supposed to do it. And I'm really glad we did that study five or six years ago, because it was kind of hard to argue that when you're in the middle of, you know, 2010, when 2015 or 16, you know, when oil prices were getting crushed and the equities were not working at all. But now we can look back and say, well, you know, that's kind of what they were supposed to do, you know? And that's what history tells you. And so that's why we continue to feel really positive about the space because we do not see inflation going back to you know 2% or lower. You know, one thing you just mentioned, it's I've been kind of chewing on this. It's like, it's really cool when you get those eureka moments where all of a sudden something just strikes you. And it's so obvious in hindsight, but kind of breaking out these sectors kind of by old and new. I mean, it's so obvious when you say it, but I've never really crystallized that in my head. And I almost think that could almost be the whole basis of a whole other podcast interview sometimes. So anyway, so kind of moving on to natural resources. So again, what do you believe is an appropriate strategic weight to kind of hold long term to natural resources? And to kind of give a little more context, would you just simply take it out of your equity allocation or because of its diversification benefits, is it kind of its own separate asset class. You know what I'm saying? How do most investors look at it from your perspective? How do you recommend people should look at it? Yeah, my view might be a little bit different, but <laughs> but you know, I, I think most investors, particularly on the institutional side and very sophisticated investors, you know, they have a real assets bucket and allocation. And as I was saying earlier, you know, what's that? You know, is it 5%? Is it 20%? You know, 25% perhaps. You know, it gets into that whole alternatives area. So you have kind of your equity bucket, your fixed income bucket, and then kind of the rest of it. And, you know, and I always kind of say it's the bottom part of the page. <laughs> so, you know, if you have that allocation, it, it's part of that allocation. I think as this sector or, or, you know, space starts to morph with this green, you know, side to it, it starts to take on the risk profile a little bit more similar to an equity allocation. Because you certainly get a lot of tech in there. You get a lot of, you know, the whole green tech sector. And so you start really thinking about just growing TAMs and just grabbing hold of that and trying to find the best player that's just going with that. So I don't see it a whole lot yet, but we do have conversations with investors about, you know, the risk profile 
which is becoming more and more like a traditional tech equity profile as opposed to a real assets profile. But that's just a conversation. That's something that's probably on the horizon. I wouldn't be surprised to see it taking a little bit more equity share as time goes on. So kind of related to this, so let's say hypothetically, my benchmark weight, at least for my portfolio, let's just say strategically, I'm always going to have, you know, 10% of natural resource stocks. So given that tactically in this current environment, should I be overweighting or underweighting natural resources? Well, probably I would say almost undoubtedly you're already underweight. <laughs> so at least you would probably want to get towards equal weight of what your policy is or strategy has to say. You know, I think the tactical aspect it would really have to be how tactically you want to be. Are you a three month or six month? Are you a 12 month? Or are you a two year, a decade or two decades? You know, so I think one of the kind of aspects that we always you know, pull into here is, is not just the macro outlook. It was really kind of the valuation components. And man, you were getting some really, really interesting valuation. In fact, almost you know, all-time low valuation opportunities right here. So it may feel a little bit, you know, boy, I've had two years of outperformance. Why do I want to you know, go in right now? Well, you have to look at the valuation and understand that these companies have morphed over the last couple of years and they're very attractive. I mean, obviously, sometimes when things are cheap for a reason, this sector is definitely not cheap for a reason. It does have, you know, a debatable short-term outlook, but a long-term outlook, it looks quite attractive. And if you get to buy something very cheaply with that kind of outlook, you know, to us, that's the time to enter. So from a more short-term perspective, if the economy does go into recession next year, how will that impact natural resource stocks? Again, it's kind of, you know, you know, is that the U.S. and Western economy and how does China offset that? There's no doubt that if the whole world goes into recession, you know, that's going to be bad for the economy and bad for all sectors. And so we, then we have to kind of think about it relatively. And then how bad could it be? I mean, let's talk about the last couple of recessions that we've been through. So if you really think about oil demand, so let's just use that as a proxy for natural resources. Oil demand during recessionary periods has only gone down once during the 70s, once during the 80s, once in the 90s, once in the 2000s, and yet to see in the 2010s. So let's think if that happens in 2023. Well, if we go all the way back to the global financial crisis, you know, oil demand went down 2 million barrels a day. All right. You know, so, you know, right now we're about 100 million barrels a day of consumption. So you're talking about 2% of the market. You know, where are we headed towards in terms of recession for the world? I mean, man, it's hard to think that, you know, the global financial crisis, if we go into recession next year, it would be more severe, more dire than what we saw in 2008, 2009. I mean, that was a real, I mean, you, you slammed on the brakes, right? You know, with regards to consumption back then, I'm, you know, everybody can remember that. You know, can we go in, into that? Perhaps, but is it going to be worse than that? It's hard to see that. And then, of course, there's always, again, I know I've said it four or five times, so you've got this China upside risk. And I would even say it's more than just China. You know, it's emerging market upside risk in terms of consumption. And that's where the majority of incremental consumption of all commodities is really coming from. You know, that's such a great point. Again, investor sentiment is it's so negative this year. In fact, this year has been the most consistently negative bearish sentiment, at least according to the 
AAII series. But if you were to drill down in different areas, I would guess just in my own conversations that people are really negative on China. And so these should be pretty thought-provoking too. Many people are probably pretty negative on China. So another question I have, and this comes up a lot, is do natural resource stocks, do they replace or do they complement other real assets such as commodities? We have always said that it's all of the above. I mean, it's a complement. And again, that depends on your strategy and how you're thinking about things. I would just say with regards to commodities themselves, what we've learned through the years is that you need to get that really right in terms of timing. And usually that takes a fair amount. And this is why I said earlier, like, you know, most commodity only shops, you know, I can't recall one that's been around forever. I mean, because if you're not getting that right, which entails a fair amount of guesswork, you're going to miss a lot of that return one way or the other. If you, you know, buying, you know, too early or too late or selling too early or too late. So that's the risk to commodities. But there's nothing wrong with having you know, a view on one or two or complex and saying you know, it fits in with my overall portfolio of real assets. I think this goes to other asset classes as well. You know, I think you know, the precious metal space is an obvious you know, addition to it. I think private equity, infrastructure, they all kind of fit into that. And you can decide how you want to put together that, that exposure. And that's just you know, up to the individuals, I think. So, Sean, so Vanek, of course, has a lot of natural resource funds, and there are a lot of natural resource funds in the industry. What would be your words of wisdom for somebody shopping for a natural resource fund? What characteristics should they be looking for? And if you don't touch upon it, why should somebody consider an ETF for their natural resource exposure? I mean, I'm an active manager and also you know, an active ETF manager as well. So I do see both sides, and Vanek has a huge suite of ETFs. But the obvious advantage to an active management is the alpha generation. And you know, the ETF is clearly a beta call. You know, so hopefully in times like these, you know, like I was saying before, it does what it's supposed to do when it's supposed to do it. You know, you're actually getting out performance in the active side. And that's, again, bearing fruit right now. I mean, if you look at our performance. But there's certainly nothing wrong with having a beta call. And what you also can do with ETFs is you can take slices. You know, I'm giving you a, a very diversified approach, you know, energy old and new, mining old and new, ag old and new. Boy, if you just want to have green metals, you can hit that. If you just want to have clean energy, you can hit that. And so that's really the difference between the two. And there's, again, probably space for, for everything. Well, let's look at some Van Eck ETFs. You've got some great tickers out there. So first, can you please compare and contrast Moo, M-O-O, which is agribusiness, and Yummy, Y-U-M-Y, future of food. And given what appears to be a bright future for ag, how should investors view and use these ETFs? So Moo is a conventional agribusiness ETF, and it's focused just really on the traditional agribusiness cycles that are very, you know, really kind of seasonal and cyclical. All right. So you're taking on that tends to lean towards names that you've heard of and, you know, is larger cap and less growthy. Whereas Future Food, Yummy, is really ag tech and really focusing on, you know, trying to address a lot of the issues that, you know, the conventional traditional ag business is creating. (laughs) So how do we, you know, feed the growing population, you know, that's going from 8 billion to 10 billion people by 2050? How are you going to do that sustainably? All right. With when you really start to dig into the ag business, it is much more impactful on the overall environment 
than even transportation is because, you know, it broadens out into water and land use and biodiversity. So, you know, how do you address that? And then how do you do that with increasing kind of the nutritional capacity and the access? So that's what Yummy with the agro food tech industry is really focusing on, you know, those kind of three subjects. And so it's real growth. This is where I was talking about before, where, you know, it really kind of gets into the kind of that growth equity side. So it's very tech heavy, very growth heavy. Take on a fair amount of risk when you do that, but it's exciting. And those are exciting ticker symbols, moo and yummy. How awesome is that? So we've talked a lot about commodities and, you know, a lot of advisors and investors we talk to when it comes to real asset exposure, they're not looking necessarily the broad base commodities asset class or natural resource stocks, again, the broad definition, but they really prefer to use gold for the real asset exposure. And in this space, Vanek has a few ETFs that are plays on gold miners. In fact, they have some of the largest asset bases among the Vanek natural resource ETFs. How do you think investors should currently view and use these ETFs in the gold mining space? Yeah, well, if I can just step back a little bit and just say, you know, it's definitely you know one of the largest funds that we have here. It's also basically the oldest fund. So, you know, the gold fund um, was actually kind of changed from the original fund that started Vanek back in 1955, and then it turned into a gold fund in 1968. And so, you know, we talk about my background with, you know, kind of geology. We've basically had a geologist on staff since 1968. In fact, that fund right now is run by two geologists and an engineer, and they all have graduate degrees. And so a lot of experience on that front. And the idea on that has always been like the true leverage to gold. And so, you know, gold, again, has proven itself does what it's supposed to do when it's supposed to do it. Maybe not, you know, real, real positively, but on a relative basis. You know, we've had this up and down over the last year or so, and gold has outperformed the market. So it's a store of value. Now, you know, it's not been a positive <laughs> driver of value, but it is the store of value as opposed to, you know, some other sectors that haven't really come through the way they're advertised to be. So that's been a, a wonderful outcome, we think. The other thing about the gold industry is that it has changed dramatically over, you know, the almost 20 years I've been here is that, you know, it used to be kind of this, you know, mom and pop and, you know, they didn't really care about earnings, didn't really care about shareholders that much. It was all about kind of the gold price. And now these companies are actually saying, listen, you know, there's the gold bullion or the gold story that we have, but we're also great companies and great stocks. And we're focusing on creating value and worrying about our shareholders and shareholder returns or worried about our valuation. And, you know, that's a real, real change that we use that as an example to other industries to say, look, you know, what the gold and the mining, the diversified miners have done. You know, you now you see that it's more in the headlines now, but you see that in the energy space. And you see it even in the ag space. They're all learning you know, how to be you know, grown-up companies and generate earnings and worry about shareholder and shareholder returns. And that was really kicked off by the gold space. Yep, indeed. And you get great valuation in the gold space too. <laughs> yep, yep. All right, so among the suite of Vanek Natural Resource ETFs that we did not mention yet, are there others that you would like to talk about? Well, you know, we have a rare earth, which really focuses on you know, that green metals. We have a green metals fund as well. And, um, you know, I think those are really exciting areas. You know, we do have Yummy, which we mentioned. You know, I think those kind of future tech things in the natural resources space are just really, really exciting. And you have to understand you're taking on risk, you know, not the type of risk that you're typically used to with natural resources. But, 
you know, this is a theme that's unfolding, you know, that's going to be decades. It's not a cycle. You know, a lot of people say, you know, what inning are we in? I'm like, oh, we're not really in an inning. We're in a marathon. And so we're in mile two or mile three, you know? And so we sprinted out of the gates and we did really well and we were really excited. And then now we're just kind of settling in. And this is going to be a long race, but it's going to be an exciting race and hopefully very profitable at the end. All right. Well, let's switch gears to some of the questions that we like to ask all of our guests here on the show. And this is a new one. Professionally, you are surrounded by incredible resources, of course, at Vanek. And this might be kind of a tough one to choose, but what would you say is your favorite investment? Well, is your perspective on this? I mean, to me, I mean, the best investment, my favorite investment is our team, investing in our team. And, you know, I like being around really smart and humble and kind people. <laughs> so spend a lot of time investing in that. If you're talking about actual, you know, where do you put your investment dollars? I think I just, you know, alluded to it. I, I really like, you know, kind of the uh, future transitional resource tech area. I think that's really exciting. If we kind of go down the lineup of, you know, the energy space, every traditional oil company is doing a ton of stuff in energy tech. You look at every diversified miner, all sorts of actions in addressing this. Even in the ag space, you look at, you know, traditional names like deer. I mean, they are moving into precision ag, precision spraying, precision, you know, just measurements and using AI. So it's just all so exciting. And, you know, I think because, you know, they're considered old industries, people get lost on that. But, you know, the future is really, really bright for those areas. I love it. I know this is the first time we've asked this question, but this is already could be a favorite question of mine. You know, we get feedback on the podcast how... You know, a podcast might have changed somebody's thinking on a topic, and it's always cool to hear that. But I think this is another one of these questions that could be pretty impactful. So I, I like it. So another question that we have that we ask all our guests, and uh, some people seem to really love it too, and that is in our profession, we all have an obligation to perform at a high level. So how do you maintain your health, both physical and mental, to ensure that you're performing at a high level? I really rely on my wife, who's a mental <laughs> health therapist, who keeps me keeps my, my mental health there. That definitely helps right there. <laughs> yep. So, you know, just my family in general, but also just like the physical aspect or, or just trying to clear your head. I mean, once or twice a year, I have, you know, a group of buddies that we just disappear, you know, kind of into the mountains or into the woods and just, you know, get really unplugged. We're really, really, you can't reach me. And, you know, it's always just this huge, your shoulders start to relax a little bit and it clears your head and you always come back, I think, refreshed. And I just think that's vital. You know, it's a little different than just taking, you know, that kind of the staycation, just completely get yourself unplugged. And uh, that's a really important part. And I do that, you know, a couple of times a year, I say. Awesome. Well, kind of our next question is related to the power of relationships. But again, we've all been surrounded by so many successful people who've helped us get to where we are today. Who are some of the people that you're professionally thankful for? I don't know if you want to really name names, but like, I mean, you might think about the characteristics, as I said, now, you know, the third time, you know, humble, kind, honest, hardworking. Those people that were around me, you know, I've always been attracted to, you know, changed my behaviors. You know, actually, when I first joined Vanek, Derek Vanek was the CIO. He's actually, you know, kind of my age. He died very young. But Derek was one of those guys that was, uh, yeah, again, very, very humble and kind and very intelligent and worked very hard and try to replicate what he did even to this day. 
All right. Well, one more before we let you go. And that is, do you have any recommendations for our listeners on what they should be reading or listening to? Books, newsletters, podcasts? One of my favorite podcasts is a little esoteric, but it gets into this energy tech area, which a group is called Veritin, which is V-E-R-I-T-E-N, Veritin. And, you know, they kind of uh, try to balance it as kind of an old versus new But what they really just look at is kind of the honesty of the discussion around energy transition. And they have amazing guests come on there. I just really like the way that they approach it, as I said, that that honesty and try to balance it. And it's not a, a zero one or this side or that side. It's like, how do we save the conversation around this so that it is pure and honest? And if you find that kind of stuff interesting, I really think it's one of my favorites. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a great conversation. And tell us how can listeners stay in touch and learn more about what you're doing at VanEck. We simply go to VanEck.com. We have lots of educational resources there. We try to cover a fair amount of stuff that isn't just, you know, traditional, you know, oh, you know, here's our equity call or here's what we think about the market. We try to give some insights into some of the stuff we do here. You know, there's a lot of interesting um, energy transition and resource transition, ag tech stuff on there. And then there's, you know, this firm is very broad and covers a lot of other things in natural resources. So there's, I would say, you know, your non-traditional type of educational information on there. Sean, I hate to do this. I know we're wrapping up, but I had one more question now to think about it because I'm thinking about the whole concept of real assets. And I know a lot of advisors and investors like to use infrastructure. And some people will only use infrastructure. What is your take on infrastructure? Is that part of the whole real asset toolkit? Is it part of it? Is it something different? What is your view on infrastructure? We see it all the time as an allocation to there. And sometimes it's very large. You know, it's a little different. It is, again, that underpinning to the global economy. You have to have that infrastructure. It's a little bit further downstream than a lot of the stuff that we look at. I mean, the returns, you know, tend to be, depends on what stage you get in, you know, whether whether it's, you know, private equity or public equity, but the returns tend to be a little bit more stable, but a little bit lower than what you can get out of the kind of stuff that I traffic in. But again, there's room, there's room for both. Well, Sean, I do appreciate your time. This is a fascinating topic. I also think it's an important topic, particularly given that so many investment portfolios really don't have a lot of exposure to natural resources. So again, I really appreciate your time today and look forward to another podcast. Maybe when we separate new and old, I think that could be another fascinating topic. So thanks again. Great. Well, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. All right. Well, that is going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. Invest well and be well. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine. And thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. Thanks again for listening. Robin and I truly appreciate you giving us some of your valuable time. We hope to provide you in each episode something you can use in conversations or making decisions or both. If you like this podcast, you might also like some of our sister podcasts at Orion Advisor Solutions. First, we have the Wang the Risk podcast, which I host monthly. On behalf of Orion Risk Intelligence, this is where we consider various market scenarios regarding top-of-mind concerns among financial advisors and investors. Next, we have one of the top-rated and most popular podcasts in the financial industry, especially when it comes to behavioral finance, Dr. Daniel Crosby's Weekly Standard Deviations podcast. And when it comes to all things fintech, we also have the bi-weekly The Fuse Show with Ryan Donovan and George Figuera, two of the funniest guys in the industry. 
you will learn something and laugh in every episode. Last, when it comes to more content, including commentary, videos, and other resources, please check out the website, orionportfoliosolutions.com, go to the research drop-down menu, and go to the Financial Advisor Success Hub. Thanks again, invest well and be well, and we'll talk to you next week. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.